you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Second uh, Samuel chapter seven? Second Samuel chapter seven. We're actually looking at the second half of last week's passage. Last week we looked at David's plans to build a temple for the Lord and how the Lord rejected those plans because they had a more significant or a more glorious plan for David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the first 17 verses, God actually spelled out what He had in mind. It's something we refer to as the Davidic covenant. If you want to boil it down, God promised David that He would build him into a great name. He said He would permanently settle Israel safely in its own land. And then He said He would establish an eternal kingdom through David's covenant. So David had come to the Lord with a desire to build him a house, build him a temple... And the Lord says, no, I've got something bigger and better in mind. And so he laid out that Davidic plan for David. Now we saw some of those things were fulfilled in Solomon, but the majority of them, or the broader picture, if you will, are going to be fulfilled or were fulfilled in Christ. Some of them yet to be um, fulfilled, if you will, Christ taken an earthly throne. Today we're going to look at David's response to that. How did David respond after hearing what the Lord had said to him? There's primarily two sections, if you will, to um, how I'm going to handle this text today. The first one is David reflecting on the Lord's favor. David reflecting on the Lord's favor. I'm going to read about six or seven verses here. We're in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 18 and read through verse 22 to start us off. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord, God, that... What is, or I'm sorry, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord, for, your, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all we have heard with our ears. We see David do uh, something rather unusual here, at least from a scriptural standpoint. The law does not mandate or did not mandate exactly how we were supposed to pray. In fact, the Bible describes everything from standing, raising hands, looking up, looking toward the temple, bowing, and even crouching down and putting one's head between his knees like Elijah did. So we have all these ways of praying. However, we see here the only instance where somebody actually sits before the Lord. Generally, postures like what we've just read indicate reverence and respect for the Lord. However, we're told here that David went in before the Lord and he sat. I want to kind of look at that for a minute because I think that's important. The phrase went in indicates that David actually went from his palace where Nathan had just laid out all of these promises by God and then he left his palace and he went down to the tent that he had placed outside the palace. If you remember, the tabernacle was left back in another city. But when David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, he needed a place to put it. So he erected a tent outside the palace. And so that's where the Ark of the Covenant is currently sitting. And so went in indicates that David went into that tent 
Now the reason that's important is because there's something in that tent. It was the Ark of the Covenant. The next phrase says that he sat before the Lord. That indicates that David was likely sitting right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. So imagine this for a moment. David goes down, he walks into this tent, here's this shiny, beautiful Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on it and the mercy seat sitting on it, and David walks into that, and he literally just, most likely in this case, probably just sits on the floor in front of it. Now the reason that's significant, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord says this to Moses, verse 17, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherub or cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering, covering the mercy seat, and their wings... And facing one another in the face of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. In other words, looking in. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I give you. Therefore, I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment of the sons of Israel. And so God basically ordained that this covering to the ark be created with the two cherubim on the side and the mercy seat in the middle and God would take his place above that mercy seat and communicate to those who were in there probably likely the high priest who was the only one able to go in there now in David's day the Lord still said that he enthroned himself above that I want you to look at 2nd Samuel chapter 6 go back to our book 2nd Samuel, Samuel chapter 6 verse 2 And David arose and went in all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the very name of the Lord of hosts who, and look at this, is enthroned above the cherubim. God's physical presence took up residency above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. So think about that for a moment. David, after the Lord sends him Nathan and declares these wonderful promises to him, now seeks out the presence of the Lord and he goes into the place where he knows he will find the Lord. And he literally goes and sits physically and literally in the presence of the Lord. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Sitting on the floor there, imagining that right there in front of you as you see this object, that right there above it, God says, I physically, my presence is right there. Now, David wouldn't have seen him, obviously, but he understood that the Lord was right there listening to him. That is, in some respects, an awe-inspiring and frightening thing, in some respects, is it not? Do you remember when um, Isaiah the prophet went before the Lord, and he says, I have become undone, when he saw the Lord sitting on his throne in heaven. But as I look at this, I think to myself, we see David here sitting 
Anyway, it's a picture of humility and contemplation and awe as he's sitting there in front of the Lord. I kind of wonder, what was David thinking? It's funny, he tells us in the text today. We know exactly what David was thinking while he was sitting there in the presence of the Lord. And that's going to be the bulk of what we talk about today. There are two primary things that captivate David's thoughts as he's sitting there. The first one is the Lord's undeserved favor towards him personally. The Lord's undeserved favor. Notice he reminisces about what the Lord had done to him up until this point. Notice the humility. Look at verse 18 again. He says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? That's not a feigned humility statement, meaning he's not pretending. It's not a self-deprecating statement. Oh, woe is me, I'm nothing, Lord. We know people who do that sometimes, right? Sort of as a vain, pretend attempt of making themselves look humble. No, this was an honest expression of humility where David is recognizing his humble beginnings as a shepherd boy, the youngest one in his family. Absolutely no reason to see him ever rise to the level of being king over all of Israel, living in a beautiful palace. And as David reflects upon that, he thinks to myself, I don't deserve this. Who am I that you would have done this thing? Notice too that he attributes all of that not to his own merit or abilities, but to the Lord. Look at the second half of that. He says that you have brought me this far. This is a statement of not just humility, but it's one of awe and wonder that the Lord would do for David what he did, knowing his humble beginnings, who he was. So he looks at what God has done up until that point, and he's in awe of that. But he also looks or reflected on what the Lord promised to do for him in the future. Look at verse 19 again. He says, And yet this, all that you've done, this was insignificant in your eyes. O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. As awesome as God's favor was to David up until this point, David realized it paled in comparison to the future promises that God had made to him. I love the way the the NET translation renders this. You didn't stop there, Lord. The NIV says it this way. And if that wasn't enough, and so David is sitting there in awe thinking, all that you've done for me, I'm numbstruck by. But man, when I consider what you've promised me in the future... You didn't consider what you've already done for me enough. You've gone far above and beyond that. It all, what's happened up until this point pales in comparison to the promises you made about my future. So even though the Lord had promised to build him a house, or had, had built him a dynasty at this point, he promised to build him a house. He said he would raise up another descendant that would become king over an eternal kingdom for all eternity. He knew that this descendant would build him a spiritual house at some point the Lord, a spiritual house. The phrase that's used there in this is the custom of man is kind of difficult. Um, it doesn't make much sense in the Hebrew, at least for us. Um, there's a parallel passage in First Chronicles chapter 17 that renders it a little differently, and it says, and you see me like the searching of man, which is upward, and that too. You start going through the different commentaries on this, and they all just sort of throw their hands up in the air and say, I'm not really sure what that means. I think, however, that the context gives us some clue 
And I think the NIV probably translates it best. What the NIV does with that is instead of saying, and this is a custom of man, O Lord, it says this. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere man. And what does David mean by that? He basically, I I would paraphrase it this way if you'll allow me to do this. In essence, what David is doing is he's saying, Lord, I'm amazed at what you've done for me because I haven't deserved it. But even more than this, you have promised me even more and you've revealed the future to a mere man such as me. Again, it goes to the humility of David and the fact that he realizes that what God has done, he has taken this mere man and has promised him these amazing things that are, that are the core and the center of his redemptive plan. And so here David is, sitting before the Lord. He is almost speechless. In fact, he even says that in verses 20 and 22. He says, again, what more can David, what more can I say to you? In other words, I'm, I'm speechless, Lord. You know your servant, O Lord God. So David is sitting there in awe and thinking, I'm just a mere man and look at what you've done. Look at what you're going to do. We see this amazing humility, this awe, this wonder that David was experiencing. There's a couple of things that that come out when David does this. It kind of reflects the trustworthiness of the Lord. Verse 21 says this, For the sake of your word, according to your own heart, you've done all this greatness to let your servant know. So that goes to the trustworthiness of God. David basically says, it's for the sake of your word that you've promised this. In other words, David had absolute, complete confidence that the Lord was going to do exactly what he had promised him. Because he said, it's for your word. It's for the sake of your word that you're going to do these things. You've said it, now you have to do it. Because otherwise, your word means nothing. And so David was absolutely convinced, as he sat there, that the Lord would do this. It also reflects the greatness of God. He says that in verse 22. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And so as David reflects upon the trustworthiness of God, the greatness of God, all of this as he sits before the ark, we can see what captivated his thoughts. God's unmerited favor to him personally. Now David doesn't stop with that. I had mentioned that there are um, two things that primarily captivated his thoughts. The one is God's unmerited favor to him. The second was God's unmerited favor toward his people Israel. Look at verses 23 through 24. And what one nation on earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do great things for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself. From Egypt, from nations and their gods. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever and you, O Lord, have become their God. And so David, as he finishes up reflecting on God's unmerited favor directly to him personally, now he reflects on the nation of Israel and says, Wow, look at what you've done for the people of Israel. If I could summarize this, essentially it would be this. Israel is a privileged nation because out of all the nations on earth, of all the people groups on earth, the Lord chose to redeem them. He chose to make a name for himself through them. He decided to do his mighty acts through them. And on their behalf. He says that he has established Israel as his people and he himself as their God for all eternity. 
No other nation, no other people group on earth has been so blessed or so favored by the Lord, including the U.S. We'd like to think that. But it's not true. In fact, God's whole entire redemptive plan is built upon the foundation of Israel. We, as Gentiles, are told by Paul in the book of Romans that we get grafted in. Now, that doesn't mean that God loves Israel more than He loves others. He loves all people. It just means that God has chosen to use Israel as His tool to save the entire world. And because of that, they are blessed. They are privileged like no other. And we see that as we go throughout the Scriptures. And so David is reflecting on that, and he's thinking, My, my, my. Look at this unmerited favor. Look at what God has done. And so that actually drives him to go in and sit before the presence of the Lord and meditate on those things. And then praise God and thank Him for doing those things. So what do we do with this from a practical application standpoint? I'm going to ask this. When was the last time that you sat and really thought about all that the Lord has done for you? We obviously have earthly blessings like a home, food, jobs, family, friends. All those things are promised by Jesus that the Lord will take care of us like he does the birds of the field. He might not promise us a big house, but he promises he'll take care of our needs. He might not promise that we get the $120 meal over at Jay Gilbert's, but he does promise that he'll feed us, right? So we have all those. But as if those things weren't enough, he's gone beyond that and he's given to us eternal blessings, just like he did David. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and made us alive together with him. I love the book of Ephesians. And one of the things I love about the book of Ephesians is in just the first chapter alone... It mentions at least 11 things that the Lord has done for us. I'm just going to read these off for you. I'm just going to rip down through the list. You probably won't be able to write them down fast enough, but I figure you have a Bible, you have Ephesians 1, you can go find them. It says that God has blessed us, He's chosen us, He's adopted us, He's bestowed grace upon us, He's redeemed us, He's forgiven us, He's lavished riches upon us, He's made known the mysteries of His to us, He's given us an eternal inheritance, He's predestined us according to His purpose, and He's given us the Holy Spirit. All that in just one chapter. And you know what? That wasn't enough because Paul goes on in chapter 2 and he says that He's he's saved us, He made us alive together with Christ, He's raised us up with Him, He's seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Do we need any more than that? When was the last time you thought about those things? When was the last time you just sat and meditated on those things before the Lord? And that's just our reality today. Those are the present realities for every believer today. All of those things I just mentioned are things you and I possess today. Now, some of them hint at the future, but see, just like the Lord told David, here's what I'm going to do for you today, here's what I'm going to do for you in the future, guess what? The Lord promises things in the future, too. I'm going to just read off some verses here to highlight some of those things. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this. Again, one of my favorite passages. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul's at the end of his life. He knows he's not going to live much longer. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. And then here's what he says, In the future, 
there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but guess what? Also to all those who have loved his appearing. So Paul says, in the future I will receive a crown of righteousness. That's what the Lord has promised my future to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an, or a perishable wreath. Okay, We know that. My kids compete in sports. They do it for the awards, right? But he says, but we compete for something that's imperishable, meaning the reward, the wreath that we will receive will be an eternal imperishable. That is something we will receive, if you will, in the future. How about James chapter 1, verse 12? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. What do we have waiting for us? The crown of life. There will be a day where ultimately our bodies will be resurrected. Hasn't happened yet. It's coming in the future. We've now been given the possession of eternal life, but... We're still waiting, are we not? We will see the fruition, or we will see that come to fruition someday after this earthly life. First Peter chapter five, verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, that's referring to the, re- the return of Christ, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So we receive the crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 will be the last verse I'll reference here, but it refers to the crown of life again. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. All these things are future. All of these things become the foundation for our praise and our thanksgiving for the Lord, do they not? It's good to sit and do what David did and meditate on these things. puts us in a position to realize all that the Lord has done for us. It humbles us. causes us to be in awe. turns our heart towards Him. I believe that's why when James is challenging believers with going through trials, he tells them to reflect. He says, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he goes through the process saying that endurance ultimately will result in maturity. He tells us to reflect on the past, what God has done through trials. And we kind of see that here with David. And so the first thing we see David basically do here is he goes in and reflects on God's favor after hearing what God had told him through the prophet Nathan. The second thing that David actually does then is he calls on the Lord to fulfill those promises. I like this here. It's going to be a little shorter than our previous section here. But verses 25 through 29, after reflecting on on these things, this favor of God, David then calls on the Lord to do two things for him. The first one is to fulfill what he promised. That's verse 25. He says, Now therefore, O Lord God, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant in his house... Confirm it forever. In other words, do it. And do as you have spoken. So the first thing he does there is he calls on the Lord, fulfill your promises, Lord. I want you to jump down to verse 29, because that's the second one, where he says, Lord, I want you to bless my house. 
Verse 29 says, Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant as it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. So in essence, what David does here now is asking God to fulfill his promises and to bless his house. Essentially, this is David's declaration of submission to the Lord. He's basically saying, Lord, do exactly as you said. Use me exactly as you want to use me. I'm going to point out a couple of things here. These verses between what I just read, verse 25 and verse 29, are like bookends. And we learn something between those in a few verses. Do you notice how many times David in this passage, you might not have really paid attention to it, but you notice how many times David refers to himself as a servant in this passage today? Somebody count these up for me as we go through them. Look at verse 19 of chapter 7. He says, You have spoken to the house of your servant. He goes on in verse 20 and he says, You know your servant. Verse 21, You've done all this greatness to let your servant know. How many is that so far, guys? That's three. Look at verse 24. You have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever, and you have become their God. Oops, I got that one written down as one. Let's jump to 25. He mentions your servant concerning your servant there. Verse 26. He mentions himself again as your servant David. Go on to verse 27. He mentions servant twice. He says that he's made revelation to your servant. Therefore, your servant has found courage. Verse 28, he mentions the word servant again at the very end. Promise this good thing to your servant. And then verse 29, he mentions it two more times. We've got at least 10 or 11 times that David uses that word servant. What does that mean for us typically? Anytime you repeat a word over and over and over, you're trying to emphasize it, right? That's David's perspective here. And so as as he looks at the Lord and he says, Lord, now do exactly what you said. The reason David's able to say that is because he sees himself as nothing more than a servant of the king. He's there to serve the Lord. And that kind of leads to my second point with this, which is, is this. David's desire to see God fulfill his promises is based not on how it benefits him specifically, but rather on how it benefits the Lord and fulfills his purposes. Look at verse 26. David says, That your name may be magnified forever, by saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and may the house of your servant David be established before you. So David basically says, Lord, I want you to fulfill these things, fulfill these promises you've made to me, fulfill these promises you've given to Israel, for the purpose of your name being magnified forever. So David was more interested in in the Lord fulfilling his promises to him, not for his benefit, but for what it says about the Lord, and for the Lord's benefit. That's really what a servant is, is it not? David's words here also reveal the faith and trust that he placed on God. Look at verses 27 and 28. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house, therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. 
Now, O Lord God, you are God and your words are truth and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Part of what David is doing here is he's basically calling on God to fulfill his words because David understood that by fulfilling those that people would see that God's word can be trusted. And so David's purpose in this, as he calls on God now to do what he had promised, really is because he's more interested in the Lord um, being magnified than himself getting the blessings, and he's more interested in the Lord's words being proven to be true and trustworthy than he was in receiving the blessings. So I want us to think about that for a minute. And we'll kind of, we'll wrap it up with this. When you think about your life, how much of your prayer life, how much are the things that you think about on a daily basis, how much of that is spent praying for or thinking about the needs and the wants and the pressures and things that you face right now that you need the Lord's help on, versus asking the Lord to use you to further His purpose? Does that make sense? We get caught up oftentimes in thinking about all that the Lord can do for us and all the things we need. And it's oftentimes reflected in our prayers. And God wants us to do those things, certainly, does He not? We're told to pour out our hearts to Him, to ask for the things that we need. Like the Lord's prayer that Jesus presented to the disciples is much like that. But when you look at David here, and he sees God say, here's everything I'm going to do for you, David's immediate attention turns to, do it, Lord, so that you're glorified. Do it so that you're magnified. I'm, I'm a servant. This is all about you, Lord. So how does that translate into our lives? I think we probably need to think, not necessarily think less about the daily needs and things we have, but probably more about, Lord, use me as your servant, to magnify yourself. So whatever you do with me, use that to glorify yourself. Use that to fulfill your purpose, your plan. I can think of a a rather graphic and extreme example of that. How many of us, if we were in the shoes of Peter, when Jesus told Peter, you know what, Peter? You're going to pay the ultimate price. The Lord told Peter he'd be martyred. How many of us would respond with, Lord, if that's what glorifies you, if that's what fulfills your purpose and your plan, then do that. Because I'm more interested in that than I am not dying. That's the attitude we see here with David. Now that's the extreme example, obviously. I think about that as it comes to even my job. I shared with Dustin, um, was it yesterday or the day before? I've shared with you about um, this gentleman down at Dayton who has been very open to discussing spiritual things. Well, we've been trying to, he had asked me not too long ago about being able to go to lunch again. And we've been having trouble sort of meeting up. Um, he gets a lot of work thrown at him, and so we've I've had a couple of trips where I've just, you know, not been able to spend time with him. And so we kind of settled on lunch again this week, 
and um, it had to be canceled because he got hammered with work, and so I was able to postpone my trip. And so I was, I didn't have a specific date or time that I had to go down to date, and I just needed to get down there before this weekend. So I was trying to work around his schedule to be able to do that. And he kept getting hammered um, with work, and so we'd have to cancel. And so on Thursday, I got ready to drive down there, and he emailed me and said, oh man, I just got slammed, I really just can't meet. And so I was just getting ready to leave and to walk out the door. I had to go regardless. Um, but as I'm getting ready to walk out the door and I get this, my heart just sank. And so I stopped and I prayed and I said, you know, Lord, I'm getting a little bit frustrated here. Not with this gentleman down there, but it was more, and I'll be real frank, it was a little bit of frustration with the Lord. And uh, my prayer was, you know, Lord... He actually has been very open. He's asked me. I just want to be available to talk to him. And yet, I sense maybe the enemy keeps putting up these roadblocks and and getting in the way to prevent this from happening. And you could certainly do something about that, but you don't seem to be doing anything about that. You could have prevented that. So, help me with my attitude a little bit here, Lord. I'm a little frustrated. I I just want to be used down there. And I just feel like, eh, you're letting the enemy get in the way. I ended with that. I got in the car, started driving down the road. I see this email pop up from him saying, you know what, I'm really going to try to make it work today. I'm going to really see if I can squeeze out some time anyway. And my first thought was, okay, Lord, I got it. You know, um, I get down there and he got hammered again. We couldn't go out for lunch, but we sat and talked for about 45 minutes about some neat things, spiritual things. I share that example simply to say that um, I had to go down for business, but that wasn't my primary purpose and desire for wanting to go down. I genuinely did. Just I just want God to use me, especially when an opportunity is presented like that. Somebody comes and asks you to talk. And it was frustrating because it messes up my schedule and other things. And I got a little frustrated, you know, because I made the plans. But the bottom line is it has to come down to, Lord, you know what? I'm supposed to be a servant. And just as David said, Lord, do it for your name's sake. Do it for your glory. I mean, it's a pretty awesome thing for the Lord to want to use us. But he wants to use us to accomplish his plan and his purpose. And our attitude towards that should be, Lord, fulfill what you've promised to me for your benefit. So again, I kind of ask the question, do we focus more on what God can do for us or how God might use us to accomplish his plan and his purpose? Because really, that's why we're here. I think about the Great Commission. You know, Jesus, when he left the disciples, basically charged them with one primary thing. Make disciples. In other words, bring people into my family. And um, so as I look at this passage and and I see David, I love the fact that he's sitting before the Lord in awe of all the things that God had done for him. But he doesn't stop there and just go, Cool, Lord, this is awesome. Thanks, dude. Man, you're the coolest God ever. He kind of stops and he goes, I'm in awe of what you're doing. But do it for your benefit, Lord. Do it for your glory. Do it for the sake of your word that you might be seen as trustworthy. What you say, you do.
It's pretty cool, isn't it? And I believe that's what he calls us to. I think we should rejoice in the great things that God does for us. I think we should look at what he's done in our lives. I look at where I'm at today with a wife and kids and a job I love and a church family that I get to serve. Man, God has been way too cool to me. It's been way too awesome. But you know what? It really should be more than just me thinking, wow, that's neat what you've done for me. It should be, Lord, thanks for using my life and using me to accomplish your purpose and your plan. I'm a servant. Amen?